Um, again, this morning we've lifted up prayer already to say that we are just grateful that you have called us into your family here, your children, and not by anything that we've done uh, in and of ourselves, but sheerly out of your grace and now uh, empowered and pressed on by that grace, we get to do uh, great things like know you and worship you and share your love uh, with the world around us. We pray now as we come to this second chapter of Micah that your spirit would just speak to our hearts, confront us where we need to be confronted, warm our hearts with affection for you uh, when we see uh, the touchstones of your grace uh, in this book. And we thank you uh, for all that you are and do for us. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, we are in the book of Micah. We're going to be camped out in this little 7th century BC, 8th century BC story right up to Christmas and, and right up to the week before. And if you've been kind of reading along with Micah, uh, I hope you have been reading along. There's some reading plans at the front there that allow you to read a little bit each day so that you can track along with us. Um, you might be concerned or might have thought to yourself, well, this isn't the usual kind of feel-good approach to the festive season. Yes, okay, so some of you have been reading Micah. <laughs> and it's not. Uh, it's a book that rather than celebrate and kind of think up ways for you to get everything that you want and get everything that you think you deserve, it peels away the veneer that drives that kind of selfish... Uh, entitlement entitlement issues that lie behind us and 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 then kind of says and reveals that this kind of way of thinking uh is oppressive it's oppressive to us first and it's oppressive to the people around us that kind of life uh, leads to oppression however viewed from another angle if we read micah the way we need to read it it's kind of the perfect foil as as we head into Christmas, because in Micah we see a sovereign and good God bring justice against sin that oppresses both his character and our joy, while at the same time promising hope on the other side for a, for a broken and for the wounded and for the humbled. And surely, is that not the promise that the story of Christmas fulfills? that God has executed or, or, or acted to execute ultimate justice and deliver a final and enduring hope in the arrival of Jesus. He's acted decisively against what sin has done in the world. And Jesus is nothing less than God here on our behalf, not another prophet, but God in the flesh. And he has come himself to... Uh, experience the full measure or does experience the full measure of our injustice and our oppression and ultimately to death but not just as another victim of this evil system but as the one sent by God who would satisfy the demands of justice that this system breeds and deliver hope on the other side for the broken and for the humble that is surely the story that Christmas ignites well, Micah, um, we just do a little recap, is what is known as a prophet. Uh, he's called a minor prophet uh, in the prophets, and that's not because what he had to say was less important than the major uh, prophet. It's just simply because his message is shorter. 
So, you know, you read through Micah, uh, Isaiah, and he's called a major prophet, and you've got 66 chapters in that book, and you read through Micah, and it's only seven chapters, so that's why he gets that little name. Now, prophet was an Old Testament office of divine appointment or calling that God instituted, and we read about that in uh, places like Deuteronomy chapter 18. That's why uh, when you're reading your Bible plan, you can't tap out uh, when you get to uh, Exodus Leviticus and go, oh, this is too hard, uh, this is too weird, look at all these numbers or whatever. Um, you need to keep reading because this information is in there. So in chapter 18, we find that Moses was the original and definitive prophet uh, through whom God gave Israel the law, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. The law's primary role is to give a pattern of life that, that glorifies God and results in human flourishing and our joy. This pattern is not a means by which they've earned God's favour, but rather this, this pattern of life is a gift to them, that, like Josh said this morning, that allows them to demonstrate that they understand and live under God's grace. It is God's word, his, his covenant, his word in the world that restricts the effects and the nature of sin in their community, in their lives. And it's his grace to them that, is, that inspires or motivates their obedience towards that. God is pictured as the great redeemer and his people are pictured as the great receivers of his goodness and his grace. So all further generations from that time forward, uh, after Moses of God's people were to live in light of the covenant agreement that was, was ratified there. If they wished to live in the land and enjoy God's blessing, they had to live faithfully by the relational and the worship principles of the law with respect to how they worshipped God, how they treated each other, and then how they witnessed, if you like, to their neighbours. If they lived in a way that neglected this law, that misrepresented who God's character is in their in their worship, in their treatment of others, uh, they would face judgment. They would face God's judgment. And ultimately, if they persisted in this, they would be exiled from the land that God was just about to, to give them, to bring them into. The role of prophets who came after Moses was to enforce the covenant, urging people to obey it, and reminding them of the blessings that flowed out of obedience and that, curse and judgment followed disobedience the two great themes of the prophets major and micah were justice and hope in relation to our sin and and god's character and as we read you know through our old testament through the books of joshua and first and second kings and into first chronicles we get this picture of israel's history of israel's relationship with god and, and and their interaction with this covenant is just persistent uh, neglect of the covenantal requirements. And at the same time, God keeps calling his people to repentance through people that he raises up, through prophets and judges and things. It's a cycle of sin and grace, of justice and hope. But all the time, God is faithful, 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 patient, 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 patient. But rather than warm their hearts with affection, an obedience towards a God who is steadfast in love and infinite in mercy, uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, all these descriptions that we hear of God throughout the Old Testament. God's people 
in particular the ones put in place to enforce and minister covenantal faithfulness, had become arrogantly, callously self-entitled. Presuming on God that regardless of their morality, of their actions and their activities, he was somewhat obligated uh, to continue to bless them because of who they were, because of their heritage, uh, because of their displays of religious practice. Because after all, God did call them into being, didn't he? God's patient grace and relational provision, his his constant faithfulness to them had not actually led them to increased affection and devotion. It had seen the incurable disease of sin in humanity turn grace into entitlement. And now that script of entitlement ultimately expressed itself in forms of oppression as it sought to ensure that it got what it felt it deserved, that it got what it desired. It's the problem with these glasses. can only read what's in front of me, not what's up there. Yeah, need a little TV just here. In the book of Micah, we get a picture, a sense of this, of this entitlement that, that existed. In verses 6 and 11, we, we read about this entitlement. There's kings and, and, and rulers and the elite, if you like, surrounded by professional uh, priests and prophets who use their religious credentials uh, to endorse and to celebrate the callous uh, prosperity of the powerful as God's will. Gifted prophets, educated priests are literally uh, prostituting, the language is, their services uh, for elite pimps, if you like. They put on a good show, uh, they run a great service, uh, everyone enjoys the music and the worship. Israel didn't lack for its uh, participation in its religious kind of performances from which these kings and and, and these culture setters would come and give their lavish gifts and they'd all go home full of positive reinforcement. As long as what they did at church looked good and felt good, that excused or made up or covered over or whatever for the rest of what they did outside of their time of worship. But, says Bruce Waltke in his commentary, The moral covenant which mandated a loving spirit towards God. Not a a spirit that that says let's manipulate God with some gifts and then he'll keep giving us what we want. But a loving spirit towards God and a loving spirit towards one's neighbours had been replaced by a covenant between the powerful, powerful religious figures, powerful social figures in bed together to, to get what they feel they're entitled to what their hearts desire, the idols of their hearts, and they oppress the poor as they do it. When Micah confronts their way of life as evil and wicked, and that God is devising their disaster, that God is going to hand them over to exile and spiritual death, they attempt to silence Micah. I mean, isn't that how entitlement goes in our lives, in everyone's life? The second we're asked or confronted with our actions to deal with our sin, we want to silence correction. 
There's no pausing to consider their motives or their actions. There's no time to reflect. They mock the idea that they are in line for a curse, for judgment, rather than continued blessing. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Micah, you, you shouldn't talk of, of accountability and, and confront sin. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Disgrace will not overtake us. You know who we are? <coughs> Entitlement rich hearts fail to acknowledge sin. They play it down. They come up with creative reasonings to legitimize it. But I know it's going to... Micah, filled with justice and might, this spirit for God's character condemns their entitlement issues and kind of mocks them back. They mock him and he mocks them back and says, if a man should go about and utter uh, wind and lies saying, I'll preach to you about prosperity. I'll preach to you about ongoing favour. I I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. Yet that would be the kind of preacher you'd pay for. That would be the kind of preacher you'd like in your pulpit one that just tells you how good you are and never actually addresses the sin and the issues in your hearts. God's people have taken God's choosing of them, his promises to them as this kind of blank check of ongoing entitlement, never-ending kind of get-out-of-jail pass, a real privileged elitism. They view themselves as the entitled top of society, of culture, not the rescued orphan, not the freed slave, not the dependent child, not, not the servant, not, not uh, exhibiting the character of God's heart who himself is a servant God and wants that to be in his people. Now, this is what Paul kind of warns us against in Romans 6.1. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, is God's character and name made better because his people are just run amok? No, he is not. God never intended for his people to roll like this. They were not designed to be a nation of rulers, but a nation of servants, a nation of priests. A nation that was about expressing what it looked like for the broken and jacked up people to live in covenant with God. They should have shown how God's laws and promises, the very character of his heart, led to, as it was lived out and pursued in their society, led to shared joy, led to human flourishing, led to the poor being lifted up, to the rich coming down and helping. And as they did, the glory of God made known. But instead, they're worse than their neighbours. And while that results in, on, in, in oppression, it results in oppression of their neighbour and of their own hearts, it also results in God being misrepresented, his character being falsely proclaimed. And this is the great sin, is it not? This is what causes God in chapter 1 to get up out of his throne and to come down. When we, when we get God's promises to us about being about our greatness and our glory and our prosperity, when we write ourselves into the story or think that the Bible is talking to us as we are the powerful ones, we are the entitled ones, 
rather than actually we are the powerless, the enslaved, the needy, we become capable of all manner of uh, oppressive entitlement. When we begin to see God as the provider of our idols and of our heart's desires, not the replacer of them, we begin to presume his greatness is seen in, in, in our greatness, you know, rather than his greatness being seen in, in his rescue of our weakness, his nurturing of our brokenness. When we see ourselves as rulers and power brokers of culture and history, we become entitled. We, we expect certain privileges. Um, as Brian Zahad, he's a, a pastor at a Word of Life Church in Missouri, uh, he wrote this blog. It was a great little blog. It was called My Problem with the Bible. And he says, It is this kind of entitlement that we've just spoken of, that led, when we, when we see ourselves, when we read ourselves in as the ones on top, it's this kind of entitlement that led to Roman Christianity after Constantine. It's this kind of entitlement that led to Christendom that, that goes on the Crusades. It's this kind of entitlement that is the whole history of European colonialism. This is American prosperity gospel. When we become entitled, we become comfortable uh, overlooking and, and, and overlooking and, and rationalizing sin because it's working for us. We pursue and we celebrate self-fulfillment rather than pausing and asking, well, how did we get here? Was somebody oppressed in how we got here? Was somebody abused? Was somebody downtrodden? Like, I'm good, but, but how did I get here? What's our response when we're challenged about things? Are we offended and indignant when someone comes to correct us, as these people were, or suggests that our actions are actually sinful? Or do we stop and reflect and say, well, is the character of God seen in my heart? This is 8th century Israel that God now spoke into, that spoke justice from his perspective against the perversion of his name and his character that resulted in the oppression of people. The first thing that oppression does, that we, we notice about oppression, where it stops first is on our own hearts. In, entitlement imprisons our own hearts first. It, in, it, it imprisons them to the, the pursuit of our desires and our idols at the expense of others. We become oppressed by the idea that we deserve more and we look around and we see what others have or, or, or what we don't have and then we begin to legitimise our grasp at more at why we deserve what they've got by carefully devising reasonings and plannings, seeing ourselves from the perspective as rulers rather than servants. This is Israel. They are throughout the night dreaming up and devising ways in their beds of using their power and their privilege for more gain. Using their friends in high places and their skillful lawyers to bend regulations. You see, this oppressive behaviour that, that was happening in Israel was perfectly legal. 
They were using loopholes in the laws and things to, to gain more wealth. And they may think that their devising is done in secret, but Micah's exposure of them reveals that God is aware of what's going on in their hearts. Nevertheless, the arrogance and entitlement of these people is demonstrated by the fact that they execute their wickedness, their evil plans, in broad daylight. In the morning they execute them. Broad daylight. In the morning in Israel, in the morning when the dawn uh, breaks, that was supposed to shed light on the darkness. It's this picture of when the morning comes, justice, a truth, exposure comes. But not here, not now. Now in the morning, all we do is we execute the evil plans that we had throughout the night. This, this is a bad state of affairs. And the condition of their hearts is exposed in Micah's kind of pointed language of they covet. They covet fields and they seize them and they take them away. It's an unmistakable recalling of the Tenth Commandment. Yeah, you might be operating within the laws, within the tax laws and, 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 and bank uh, repossession laws and all this kind of stuff. But you are actually neglecting God's law because what drives all your actions is you covet. You feel entitled. You think you deserve this stuff. There's no concern for the welfare of those who are on the receiving end of this legal but immoral practice. The entitled are fortified by their reasoning that they have done nothing wrong. They're acting perfectly within their, in the bounds of legality. The fact that they spent the night hours planning more and more acquisitions exposes the oppressive and inevitable grip that greed has on the soul, callously numbing them to the outworking of their actions. Entitlement first oppresses our hearts, grips our souls, makes us capable of doing stuff that oppresses others. Secondly, when we're ruled by entitlement, our actions will either directly or indirectly oppress others. That's the natural outworking of it. It's a wicked and evil picture indeed that Micah paints. The powerful have not used their station or their wealth uh, in life to uh, assist the less fortunate, but rather deprive them of what they already have. It's not wrong to be powerful. It's not wrong to be wealthy. These things are good. God gives them, and, but does not give them to you as a means in an end. Gives them to you to steward so that you might lift up the broken, the poor. In an agrarian economy, a family's, family's life and freedom was attached to the, to the owning and the passing on of land. It's all they had. If they are deprived of the ownership of them, they become dependent on the new owners, the, the, the one who now owns their inheritance. Perhaps that happened through a, a, a loan they couldn't repay or debt they couldn't repay. Now rather than uh, free people, they, are, they have become hired labourers, even slaves in their own homes. Perfectly legal. And yet Micah calls it out as oppressive and wicked and evil. It has turned the place that was meant to be or promised by God as an inheritance of rest and security, this promised land, this, 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 this land of rest and security, is now a place of slavery and humiliating poverty. 
The rich robe uh, that's mentioned is a picture of a man's dignity. They rob a man of these dignity, something that God imbues into every single person as his image bearer. And it seems there's little care or concern for the dignity of people, for those God loves. There's no justice for the poor and there is no mercy for the weak and no one walks humbly before God. All of Israel has entitlement issues. All want to operate like this. All long to act like this. It's just the powerful that have the means to do it. Just because you can do something does not mean it should be done. Just because you can neglect something does not mean you should neglect it. If we are reading Micah appropriately, will we not hear the prophet calling out, we will not just hear the prophet calling out Israel, but we will hear him speaking down the corridor of time to us. Are we, are we acting uh, without justice in what we do? Are we acting or neglecting mercy or failing to love kindness? Are we failing to walk humbly before our God? Or are we in varying degrees you know, suffering from entitlement issues? It's, it's very easy to put greed over generosity. It's, it's very easy to choose comfort over inconvenience. When, when we see ourselves as fundamentally entitled, entitled to get home quick rather than stop and help, entitled to get home then eventually and sit on the couch and maybe not help our spouse, entitled to a cup of coffee rather than maybe sponsoring a child, entitled to bigger homes and better things rather than perhaps tithing at church, entitled to the latest fashion at the expense of some kid in a sweatshop. Micah is challenging us to wrestle with the questions of do we notice and see entitlement unchecked the the little nuances of not just the great big obvious things that can lead to oppression that can misrepresent god in our lives from the simplest action to the greatest god's people were and are still required to do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly not entitledly before him It's a grave picture as the strong and the mighty are ruined. The lives, as the strong and the mighty have ruined the lives of others by taking their fields, now others who are stronger than they will take all that they own, all that they have acquired. Just as the idolatry of greed saw them ruin lives by the reappropriation of ownership of land, so God's justice will see them ruined and humiliated and cut off from any future inheritance on the other side of God's judgment. They will not be a part of this remnant that returns from exile. It's a chilling description of the justice of God. Just as they devised wickedness and planned evil, so now God devises disaster for this irretrievably entitled people. And we should hear that word that God, this is not God losing his mind and, and, and acting out of rage. This is his well thought out, considered response to centuries and centuries and centuries of sinful oppression after centuries and centuries of calling them back. As un, uncomfortable and as unnerving as it may seem to us, 
that God would act so decisively towards sin and injustice. Try to imagine for a moment how this would sound if you were truly powerless and poor. Imagine hearing Micah say, God is not indifferent or or, or unconcerned with injustice. In fact, he is deeply committed to its extinction. However, this life-saving cure against this life-threatening sickness of entitlement will only come through humility, through a process of once again seeing yourself as the orphan, the exiled, the needy, the one who's dependent on God's grace, not merely demanding it. God is going to bring an end to oppression. It turns out through the voice of Micah. It turns out that oppression and arrogance and pride are on a short leash that God controls. This is either good news or it's disastrous news, depending on how you hear it. In God's economy, he brings down the proud and he raises up the humble. Can you imagine what it's like to have this radical voice wandering around through the land saying God is about to act in a way that will see the oppression of the entitled at the top lose everything and then one day the humbled and the broken will be restored with dignity. It's interesting to note that the whole of Israel in verse 3, the family need to be cured of the idolatry of entitlement. It would seem that it exists in all hearts It's just that the powerful have the means to act on it with devastating effect. The restoration of an entitled heart begins with rebuke and the humbling of the proud and entitled heart and then the humbling of these proud and entitled hearts. It's not something that comes quickly. It's not something that you can click your fingers to do. True restoration waits for signs of humility. It takes time to cure pride. And in the end, it will be the humbling experience of the exile in Babylon that sees Israel humbled before God. Well, this this scene of total ruin uh, is broken into by a word of hope. Ruin and exile will not be the last word. The survival of a remnant is promised. Hope on the other side of judgment. Justice that that leads to a renewed practice a restored people there is a sense of absolute certainty in this promise of hope as the prophet declares that god will will surely assemble all of his remnant god who is greater than our sin will provide the means of salvation for all who are humbled by the need of god's provision in this remnant no one who humbles themselves misses out No one is neglected. While Israel are powerless to save themselves from ruin, God is pictured as the one who will act on their behalf. He will gather them like a shepherd gathers sheep, scattered, bringing them in. The image of sheep is not meant to be warm and fuzzy sentiment. It's a picture of vulnerability, of weakness, of dependency. That's how sheep roll. They are totally powerless. And without, a, without the voice of the shepherd, they are prone to wandering and dying. And that's how God's people need to see themselves, as in need of a shepherd, as in need of one who would gather and restore. 
It's only as they allow God, the great shepherd, to lead them as their Lord and King that they continue on as his people. At a historic level, this transpires as Hezekiah, the the, the king at the time, listens to the word of Micah, the word of God in the prophet, and Jerusalem uh, is miraculously spared from a seemingly unstoppable Assyrian advance. We read about that in 2 Kings 19. But tragically, the cure is temporary. And in just over a 100 years' time, Micah's prophesied exile will be completed as the Babylonians come in. And the unrelenting, destructive nature of sin in God's people will be held at bay by the humbling experience of captivity and exile. It's God's kindness to deal strongly with sin. It would be a few hundred years later that another charismatic figure would walk the landscape of Israel, refer to himself as the Good Shepherd, who who declares that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to bring about a new order of things, promising that the poor are blessed, that there will be liberty for captives, that there will be recovery of the sight of the blind, and that that there will be setting free of all who are oppressed, and that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. However, on this occasion, it will not require sinful people to be humbled. On this occasion, the shepherd, who is the Lord and King, will go before his people and say, I will take the lowest spot. Do you want God's acceptance? I will take his exile. Do you want his riches? I will become poor. Do you want his strength? I will become weak. And in this radical voice of divine exchange, the promise of ultimate deliverance for oppressed hearts is decisively announced. And it is decisively accomplished as Jesus has his rich robe stripped. As Jesus is beaten and imprisoned. As he is mocked and made a picture of lament and shame and disgrace. As he is nailed to a cross to face his own exile and his own final ruin this is the good shepherd saying I will become the lightning rod of God's justice I will become the place where God's judgment is executed and I will do all this because it is the only way to save you from it I cannot deal with oppression without destroying the oppressor unless I am the one destroyed, punished on their behalf. For both the oppressed and the oppressing, my exile, my ruin, my death will deliver a hope that's everlasting. The cure for oppression issues that comes from a heart sick with entitlement come when that heart has been to the cross has been humbled by the magnitude of God's love and grace toward a sinner. The hope promised throughout the Gospels is that on the other side of the justice and judgment of God on the cross towards Christ is the promise of a new heart 
that is not controlled by selfish entitlement, but is controlled by the leading of God's Spirit. Don't we long for that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this minor prophet who speaks to us in a major way. We thank you that as we hear him speak, we are challenged with the sin and the entitlement of our own hearts. It's easy to look at at, at big corporate greed or, or big corporate oppression, but we are asked to look at our own individual character and nature. And we know that it's unrelenting, but we thank you that in Jesus... We don't have to face exile. We don't have to face shame and punishment for this. We just need to come and surrender our need of a new heart. And in him is great provision. And we give you thanks for that. We thank you for how Micah paints this picture of, a, of, a, of our need and a coming solution. Would your spirit work in us today? Uh, to confront us with what we need to deal with and to warm our hearts with affection to a God who deals justly and gives hope. Amen.